Welcome to another episode of The Wheat Profit, a podcast where we explore all things wheat. The goal of this podcast is to provide Saskatchewan wheat producers with resources and information to increase profitability and sustainability on their farm. I will be interviewing experts in the field about current production issues and the latest wheat research. I'm your host, Haley Tatro, the Agronomy Extension Specialist with Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. As we move towards spring, it's a good time to start thinking about herbicide and weed management for the coming season. Looming supply chain issues, the glyphosate shortage and price increase may leave producers scrambling for pre-run options this spring. Over the last year, we've seen the price of glyphosate rise significantly due to a storm of factors, including COVID supply chain issues, environmental actions in China, which has reduced output, hurricane damage to Bayer's largest glyphosate plant, and extremely high global FOSS prices. The shortage and increased costs, the shortage and the increased cost of glyphosate creates significant challenges for pre-burn this spring and creates higher demand for tank mixes and alternative products, which could then lead to tighter supplies of these products as the demand increases. Today, we'll be discussing strategies to compensate for the glyphosate shortage and how to make the most of the product that we were spraying. We have herbicide expert Eric Johnson and a spray expert Tom Wolf here today to provide some insight into strategies for the coming spring. Eric Johnson is the research officer for the Crop Imaging and Agronomy Lab at the University of Saskatchewan, and Tom Wolf is the managing partner of Agrometrics. Tom and Eric, welcome to the Wheat Profit, and thanks for taking the time to be here today. Thanks for inviting us. Great to be here. With the looming glyphosate shortages and the significant price increases, I believe we're at something like two times the 2021 price of glyphosate right now. Um, producers are going to need strategies on how to deal with the increased cost and reduced product availabilities. So let's kind of jump right in and talk strategies on how to manage this. Um, so how can a producer reduce the quantity or reliance on glyphosate this spring? Um, that's a pretty general question. So maybe we'll start off with the chemical options, the tank mixes and alternatives first. Well, I think the first point I want to make to growers is that, I mean, it's critical every year, but maybe even more so this year is to be, is to scout their fields and know the weed spectrum. And um, there's a number of pre-seed burnoff products that are tank mix partners with glyphosate, but they're also registered as standalone products. And uh, the last couple of days I've been compiling a list and I came up with uh, 28 unique active ingredient or active ingredient combinations that can be applied with glyphosate. Uh, 20, of the, 20 of these products are registered in wheat, uh, six are registered in uh, canola, and another six for pulses. So there's lots of options uh, available in terms of tech mix partners. Most of these uh, pre-seed products control uh, broadleaf weeds. And uh, so in that situation, if you're adding glyphosate to it, you're really focusing on trying to control uh, grass weeds. However, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, adding glyphosate does enhance the broadleaf weed, weed control as well. Um, so I think, you know, it, if you're looking at a very early spring application, um, and uh, you know our two main grass driver weeds are wild oats and green foxtail. They tend to emerge a little later in the spring. So the need for glyphosate, if you're using a, a tank mix partner such as, um, well, that contains two or three different active ingredients, uh, you might be able to use that as a standalone product, maybe uh, look at lower rates of glyphosate with that or you might just eliminate uh, the glyphosate with the early applications. 
Um, so there's a number of uh, different groups and products that are available for pre-seed burn down in wheat. And so, you know, there's group two products and uh, farmers may uh, use a group two to, um, I think their real strength is that they enhance the control of composite weeds like um, narrowly talk spirit and dandelions. Certainly the main disadvantage of the group twos is there's quite a few broadleaf weeds that are resistant to, to it, that group. Um, but there's a number of uh, products where you the groups twos are combined with fours, six, and uh, 14. And, and uh, we have two uh, tank mix partners now that have uh, three unique modes of action. So uh, like I mentioned, there's lots of uh, options for, for uh, tank mix partners for growers. Definitely. And, and a really great resource. I know on the front of the um, uh, pesticide books we get from the ministry each year, they have some really great tables on there that kind of summarize that really well. Um, so you did mention the tank mix options. Um, so a lot of times I know, says so say uh, florazolam or prepass or priority or whatever you want to call it. Um, like we're going to use a higher rate of glyphosate, but so using that tank mix, you would be comfortable then reducing, you know, say to a half rate of glyphosate and you think you would still see pretty adequate control. Well, so let's talk a little bit about glyphosate rates and I'm going to talk um, in terms of um, Roundup equivalent leader rates. Okay. And so experienced growers will be familiar with the one and half liter rates that we used to use with the you know, the Roundup original, the 360 gram per liter formulation. So for, I guess, more recent uh, uh, farmers, uh, if you're using a 540 gram per liter formulation, a half liter is equivalent to 0.33 liters per acre. One liter is equivalent to 0.66 liters. So um, I think what's happened over the years that uh, growers uh, because glyphosate has been relatively inexpensive, they've been increasing uh, the rates they've been using. And they've, you know, some cases are applying a one liter rate um, uh, as a, a standard uh, procedure. Um, there's not that many weeds. And again, if they're just looking at grass weeds like wild oat and green foxtail, uh, the half liter rate is sufficient in most cases. The only uh, grass weed I could think of that you'd want to stay at that one liter rate would be foxtail barley if you have issues with that in the pre-seed burnoff. I think you, we should keep in mind too that um, when we started using glyphosate in pre-seed burnoffs in the, you know, when zero till took off in the 1990s, we were actually using rates as low as 0.33 liters per acre. Um, a third of a liter per acre, sometimes even a quarter liter per acre. And uh, again, at that time, we were looking at, uh, you know, controlling relatively um, easy to control weeds at that time. You know, over time, uh, weeds like dandelion and uh, wild buckwheat and hawksbeard became more product problematic. So our rates went up. But like I mentioned earlier, we now have a number of uh, uh, good tank mixes that can take care of those problem weeds. And um, so, you know, there's an opportunity for growers to maybe stretch the rates. I think 
um, you know, Tom will elaborate on some of this as well, but we also have to keep in mind that when we were applying those lower rates, in a lot of cases, we were applying uh, lower water volumes. So uh, five gallons of uh, carrier volume per acre. Um, growers may have increased it over time because of tank mixing it with a, a contact herbicide. So, um, you know, uh, application parameters are going to be really critical if you're looking at um, reducing rates. Definitely. And like you said, it goes back to scouting too, you know, looking at what weed pressure you have in the field and what are your main weed problems in that field and then kind of basing your decision off that. So um, maybe Tom, that's a really good segue for you to talk about some of these tank mix um, options from a sprayer's point of view and application point of view. Yeah, like Eric said, when we're moving to maybe lower glyphosate rates to deal with the fact that we only have maybe three quarters uh, of what we actually wanted to have in on hand, uh, we when you look at the label of, of glyphosates uh, across all manufacturers, when you're using the half liter rate equivalent or even the third liter rate equivalent, uh, it does call for 350 mils of a non-ionic surfactant to be added to that. And, and some people may not have checked that fine print for a while because they've not gone down to those low rates. Non-ionic surfactants such as EggSurf, Agro 90, Companion, are the, 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 the standard ones that are recommended. And that's because glyphosate is a very polar molecule and it needs a surfactant really to get across the cuticle. Um, the other issue with lower rates of glyphosate is the fact that it is going to be more susceptible to hard water antagonism. The issue really is a concentration. So the, you have a certain amount of hard water cations in any water uh, source. And if you, have, if you bring a, a more molecules of glyphosate into the mix, it, there's a greater likelihood that the antagonism will be overcome. But with these lower rates, the opposite may happen. So we have to deal with water quality. I'm really recommending that everyone test their water this spring. Uh, we've just come out of a drought, so water levels have receded. Water quality will likely have changed for ground and surface waters. And hardness that may not have been a problem in the past may become a problem. And the, the best surfactant or adjuvant, I guess, for hardness uh, of, with glyphosate is really ammonium sulfate. Uh, it's a well-known product. Uh, it uh, does not antagonize uh, the, the common tank mix partners of glyphosate. The only real caution with ammonium sulfate is uh, solubility, just making sure it's fully dissolved and doesn't cause any plugging issues, but it tends to be rather water soluble. So that's quite good. We're really uh, talking about maybe a, a 1% weight by volume of 24, uh, 21.0024, which is pure ammonium sulfate, the dry product. So one kilogram per hundred liters of water. It's quite a lot actually, um, but you can, uh, you may have to increase that rate depending on your water quality test result. So that's, that's an important uh, issue. As, uh, as Eric said, you know, we have been moving to higher water volumes primarily to help the tank mix partners out. You know, we're tank mixing more group sixes, group 14s. Uh, with glyphosate and they do need the higher water volume. So if you're doing both of those things still, lowering using less glyphosate and using more water to accommodate that, that makes those two points that are made even more important. So one thing you talked about uh, testing water quality, and we have a podcast on this um, in one of our earlier episodes, but do you maybe have a couple labs that you would recommend producers send their water samples to or where should they get them sampled? 
Uh, I don't really have any favorite labs. I just deal with the output. The provincial uh, government has a lab and they have uh, guidelines for uh, agricultural waters. Uh, they don't have specific spraying guidelines, but they will quote actually a fact sheet that they produce, which is one of the best fact sheets on water quality that is available anywhere. And it was written maybe, I don't know, 25 years ago by Rick Holm and Les Henry. It's really good. And uh, I still refer to it from time to time because it combines um, a good science of what does hard water actually do to herbicides and what do, and which herbicides are affected and and where in Saskatchewan is the water known to be particularly hard. Okay. So I would I would suggest any anyone to refer to, uh, to that fact sheet. It's called um, herbicides and water quality. I think in Saskatchewan. I will link that in the bio. That's a great resource. Um, so we did talk about the non-ionic surfactants and adjuvants. Um, can we talk maybe a little bit? I know you kind of talked about this, Eric, earlier. Alternatives to glyphosate. So what other products do we have available in our kind of arsenal that we can use if we, you know, maybe are prioritizing glyphosate for other crops or, you know, even for in-crop for, say, canola? What are the other alternatives to glyphosate? Well, there aren't really what I would consider, you know, uh, products that are a straight substitution for glyphosate because, uh, you know, we don't have a product that's necessarily going to control, have activity on the, the broad spectrum of weeds that, that we're looking at. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are, you know, products... Um, that uh, uh, you know, burn off products, let's say like uh, Intervix, which has got three different modes of action. So that will control a number of uh, different broadleaf weeds. Um, Thunderhawk is another product from uh, New Farm. Again, three different modes of action. So that's fairly you know broad spectrum weed control. Um, so I. You know, again, it really kind of boils down to, uh, you know, what what weed spectrum the growers have there. So, you know, it's going to be hard to eliminate using glyphosate. There will be situations where they can. Um, I should all men also mention, though, there are two products that uh, have activity on grass weeds as well as broadleaf weeds. And so the, the um, one... Um, product is uh, contains flucarbazone and um, those are sold um, uh, as the Himalayas or um, Infernal and uh, so they're applied um, pre-seed. Uh, they will have activity on things like wild oats and uh, they also provide residual control of wild oats and uh, green foxtail. Um, the other product is propoxycarbazone or Olympus uh, from Bayer Crop Science. And uh, that particular herbicide, again, will provide both broadleaf and uh, uh, grass wheat control. However, um, it's, uh, it focuses uh, mainly on controlling foxtail barley. And they recommend uh, a sequential application of a pre Olympus in, um, and then followed by a post-application in crop. So um, like I mentioned earlier, it's, it's really difficult to eliminate glyphosate altogether. 
I think where I would start is, you know, looking at what weeds I have out there. Maybe I can just use a broadleaf herbicide uh, 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 pre-seed burnoff product to begin with, or a lower rate of glyphosate, particularly uh, if uh, if the the weeds are actively growing. I mean, that's one thing that we should also point out is that, you know, the stage of growth and the conditions that spraying are going to make a huge influence on how well the product works if you're going to uh, be stretching your rates at, as at all. That's a really good point about conditions at spring. Obviously, you know, we've had a drought and we're coming, hopefully there's a lot of snow, but we don't know what the spring will bring. Um, so what kind of considerations, I guess, you know, really evaluating the weed pressure is going to be important to see what comes in the spring. But um, is there any other considerations that we should kind of be aware of looking at pre-burn this spring? Well, you know, the last couple of springs, uh, it's been extremely dry. And, uh, you know, I think one question that our growers had to ask themselves is, do I really need to apply a pre-seed application? Um, we had situations where we had on our research farm where we had really no growth uh, to justify you know, applying uh, a herbicide. And perhaps if they, you know, growers that applied 2,4-D or something last fall uh, for winter annual weed control may have a relatively clean field starting out if they're seeding early. So um, I'm, I'm, I live in North Battleford and uh, the snow cover is extremely good here this year. So I'm anticipating that we're gonna have enough spring melt um, that we'll be looking at uh, significant weed emergence in the spring. Um, however, you know, there are still very dry parts of the province where perhaps uh, growers might even be able to forego a, an, an early spring burn off. Definitely, that's a really good point. So again, we gotta go back to scouting. <laughs> it kind of always comes back to scouting. So Tom, maybe we'll switch gears a little bit and we'll we'll talk a bit about spraying and technologies for kind of reducing the amount of glyphosate that we need or the amount of product in general that we need. Yeah, and you know, I, I do, uh, I present spraying research really always in the context of agronomy uh, because it is really an agronomic tool and it's one in which timing, for example, is very important. And uh, we already talked about the uh, possibility of, you know, whether we have a dry or a wet spring. And, uh, you know, I would simply say this, that um, if, we, um, if we look at making the most of your herbicide, then early application is always going to be of some value. That's when the weeds are the smallest. It's when um, perhaps they haven't been, you know, hardened off by dry weather and cuticular formation is still juvenile and the absorption is going to be better. The, the fear I think of spraying early is always that we miss the second flush, you know, that if it should rains come, then, then there's going to be weeds that are uncontrolled. And I think there's plenty of research by Eric and my colleagues in Agriculture Canada and elsewhere that have shown uh, successfully that early removal uh, is still the way to go. Uh, the, the weeds that come up a little bit later are less likely to be very competitive. They may emerge with or after the crop has emerged and therefore the crop has the upper hand in terms of uh, adapting. And they rarely pose as serious a yield threat as other uh, earlier emerging weeds have done. For example, remember Eric, you and I did some work together in Scott where we uh, sprayed uh, herbicides on time, but poorly and late, but really well. 
And uh, we wanted to know what the outcome of that was. And the early sprayed plots, we sprayed poorly. And by poorly, we meant we purposely chose spray qualities that were too coarse. And with incomplete weed control, the yields of those crops still were better than the crops of those where we waited for conditions to be perfect and then sprayed the perfect spray, which might have been a week or more later. And the yield damage had been done. So with that in mind, and there's a big preamble to really talking about something actually other than spraying. It's, it's talking about productivity. It's talking about logistics, being able to be productive in, our, in, our, in, in one or two days that you might have that are where the weather's good for the early application. If you miss those windows, then you are forced into a situation where maybe higher rates are in fact required. Remember the whole premise of reducing rates and stretching rates, as we've said, you know, it's really the elephant in the room. We're not here to advertise or advocate for lower than label rates, but the, the real fear is that we promote uh say, a polygenic resistance, the resistance kind that basically allows some plants to just escape. Some, some will escape. And if they're cross-pollinated or outcrossing or even dioecious, then their progeny is likely to be as strong or stronger against that herbicide. So over several generations, then we can do develop a multi-genetic uh, resistance. So many small traits coming together, making that plant hardier. That's certainly been documented in the literature. It's happening right now for Palmer Amaranth in the United States. And, uh, and so that is something we were trying to avoid. So I'm just simply saying, look, uh, if you're going to stretch rates, then uh, do so with good agronomic intent in mind and making sure that there are no survivors. And that's why some of those things become more critical. But uh, the, the other aspects, really, if you are going to spray, now it's going to be really important to pay attention to the kind of weeds that are present. Are you looking for grassy weeds or broadleaf weeds? Are they large or small? Because that determines the spray quality. If they are grassy weeds, they're difficult to wet. They present very difficult targets for a spray to hit one or two leaf stage uh, grassy weeds are some of the toughest targets for any spray to hit. You have to have a finer spray to do so. And that again means your window might be, might be narrow because now you're looking for good weather, right? So to minimize evaporation, minimize drift, that again means productivity. So really what we should, we should be talking about is beefing up your tendering capacity, you know, making sure the spray never waits, making sure when it does wait, it waits for a very short time to fill, for example, beefing up your, your cleaning capacity and having a, a continuous rinsing system or perhaps uh, other ways of, of saving time. Every 15 minutes you save during a spray day is spray time. And you can do, you know, a good, a good operator can do a quarter section in an hour and a half. That really does add up. So I think that's that's very important. Exactly. Yeah, efficiency is key. I mean, obviously in spring too, when we're we're busy seeding and we're wearing a lot of hats, like we were talking about before the podcast, you know, it's it's time is money on and it's really important in spring. So um, what about some technologies? Maybe I know you wanted to touch on, on spot spraying and stuff like that as a way to kind of strategize uh, herbicide usage. Do you want to maybe explain that a bit? Yeah, the spot spray example is a really good one. You know, the 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 spot spray that's commercially available, there are two spot sprays commercially available in Canada right now. They're green on brown technology. So that means they're on fallow or pre-seed or post-harvest. Uh, so the first one is the Trimble 
Weed Seeker, which has been around for over 20 years. It's just sort of disappeared for a while. It's coming back. It uses an NDVI sensor and detects green material and spray it and can activate a nozzle just to spray it. The other one that's out there that has come on with a bit of a stronger presence is called Weeded. And Weeded uses a chlorophyll sensing light, a slightly different concept. So a living plant tissue is required for this one to be activated. Both, both of them can be operated at normal travel speed, so up to 15 miles per hour. They will trigger a nozzle just over top of the lane that the, that the weed has been detected in. So they can save somewhere between 75, well, you know, at the highest, maybe 75%, but as low as maybe 50%. Nonetheless, the point is that there are two points. A spot spray may be the only way you can actually spray all your acres this year if you only have half the product that you want, you know? Uh, so that is a, a, a way of getting everything done. And the second one is, you know, we talked about the price increases we've had somewhere between two and threefold for glyphosate in the past year to 18 months. Uh, the return on investment on some of those technologies is greater than ever. We used to talk about a, a payback period of three or four years for a larger farm for this kind of technology. Well, that's been reduced because of this price. And, uh, and so if there was ever a time to, to buy into it, you know, maybe the high price glyphosate era is one. So I guess then if somebody is interested in this technology, where do they look or, or who do they reach out to for that? Uh, the distributors for Weedit is Croplands Canada. It's a, it's a company that's actually owned by a new farm. It's an Australian sprayer manufacturer, wholly owned by a new farm. And they have a, an office now in Calgary and they will, they will answer questions. They have a website. Uh, Trimble, the Weed Seeker, is available through Trimble Retails. Uh, they, as I said, the technology has been a little bit dormant in the last little while, but I think it's coming back and they can be reached through Trimble. Yeah, definitely. It definitely makes sense more in a year like this than any year, right? Where prices are, you know, on a steady increase and just the risk of, of not having the product and then having that upper or that technology to kind of help out with that. So that's a really interesting um, way, I guess, to manage herbicide efficacy. Yeah, there's one other one I just forgot, Haley, and that is uh, John Deere entered this market. And uh, John Deere uh, is not yet for like their first sale, but they haven't delivered their product yet. They expect to deliver in 2022. So we haven't seen it in action and uh, temporarily forgot about it. It's called Sea and Spray Select. It's also cam, it's a camera based system. So they don't have a green uh, sensor that uses NDVI or chlorophyll, but rather it's just a green capable camera, video camera. And uh, same thing. If it's if the if the weed is in the lane of that particular nozzle that senses it, then that nozzle gets activated. Yeah, I mean it's something that you know when I was in university and coming up, it seemed so far out, and now that it's actually here and kind of available, these kind of technologies, it's really cool to watch that that change in such a short amount of time. Um, so, well, I guess we'll kind of maybe shift gears here a little bit um, and talk about maybe making our crop more competitive. So this is a question, I guess, for both of you. So whoever wants to kind of talk a little bit about the best ways that we can make our crop competitive to help out compete the weeds, maybe we can tackle that topic here. Go ahead, Eric. Okay. Um, well, I think um, I'll, I'll weigh in here to begin with and then uh, let uh, let Tom also answer as well. Um, so certainly I, I think you know, we can just look at the various crops in terms of their competitiveness for, to begin with. So, uh, you know, barley is extremely uh, competitive. Uh, 
wheat, uh, you know, cereals tend to be you know, competitive. And, and, you know, the hybrid canolas have even been showed to be quite competitive. Um, and, and the pulses, of course, uh, generally, uh, in particular lentils uh, are, are the most non-competitive crops. Um, and you can throw flax in there as well. So I think uh, one thing growers can, uh, you know, look at to begin with is crop choice. Um, you know, good seed placement, um, uh, adequate separation, not, not applying too high rates of uh, fertilizer with, within the seed row. So the crop gets uh, established uh, quickly, gets out of the ground and can compete with weeds. Um, you know, depending on the crop, uh, you know, some crops are, are, are very well adapted to early seeding like pulses. So you can get out there early. Uh, they will withstand a little bit of frost. Um, uh, that's another uh, thing uh, to consider is seeding date, um, seeding rates. Uh, you know, growers, uh, organic growers, typically will increase their seeding rate by about 25% um, over conventional seeding rates to try to uh, assist that crop in competing with weeds. So those are some things that just come to mind. Yeah, and I would add to that, uh, that probably again, a bit of a logistical exercise. Uh, one of them is simply uh, doing, doing the work that makes it possible to be in the field early. Um, in, you know, on our farm, we, I grew up in the river Valley of Southern Manitoba and water drainage from the snowmelt was always a big deal. And the fields that we had drained with, with the shallow drainages that are so common in that area that were, we were able to go on to that, that made a, a big difference waiting for those last little low spots to dry up can really set you back days, if not weeks. So I would say getting into the field early starts with long-term investments in, in drainage and, and level and capabilities. It depends on, of course, on where you are. Um, the second one is really that uh, when the weather's good, you know, sometimes we're just not ready yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we, haven't, uh, we haven't finished prepping all the gear. And we may still be picking up some seed from the, from the cleaners even, or waiting for delivery of some other things. So the, the logistical preparation uh, is a big part again of getting into the field early. I, I really want to encourage everyone to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, those are great points. And, you know, ultra early seeding is kind of one of those things that we've been talking about on the podcast earlier. It's uh, Brian Berries has has some great research showing, you know, the benefits of ultra early seeding in wheat. So that's something, you know, definitely out competing those weeds and getting getting out there early, like you said, and being ready to get out there early is huge. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at his work uh, that he um, that he published um, with his Ph.D. student and it's it's amazing that you know they're seeding in in March, right? I mean it's Lethbridge, but who <laughs> thinks about it in March? Who's who would be ready to go if the weather presented itself that you could go into the field? Uh, that's a whole other question, isn't it? Yeah, that's a and that's I mean that's super early, right? I mean even if looking into April is super early for me and my farm's up in northern Saskatchewan, so it's unheard of. Usually, you know, we're plowing snow still at that point, but. But yeah, like you said, being prepared to be ready if, if the opportunity presents itself would be huge. Um, and then just setting your crop up for success so that maybe, you know, you don't even need the, the pre-burn this year is, is kind of the hope, I guess, right? So 
So yeah. Haley, if I could just add uh, a couple yeah. things, because we, you know, we can't see uh, everything early, and um, so, uh, you know, as seeding gets delayed, there's going to be more plant growth and weed growth at that time. So that's when it gets a little more critical for your burn off, and in terms of, you know, you might not be able to be shaving rates because the the weeds can be quite advanced. I. I would also encourage, we did some research, Ken Sapsford and I, a few years ago, quite a few years ago. And, um, you know, we looked at a, an early burn off, even though we couldn't seed a couple of weeks until a couple of weeks later. And uh, we really saw an advantage in the severely dry springs. Didn't make that much difference in, in wetter springs, but that wheat growth, if you let it uh, accumulate, uh, until you seed, let's say in late May, uh, you can have used a, a, an awful lot of moisture. So there may be, you know, if there's a day where it's maybe too wet to seed or you can still get out and spray, it's probably some advantage into getting, still doing that early burn off, even though you might not get to that field for a period of time after that. That's a really good point. You know, obviously weeds use moisture and water and nutrients. So, so controlling them early would be definitely crucial in a, in a year like this. I mean, I just seen Les Henry's soil moisture map um, for 2022 season, and it's just the amount of red on it in Saskatchewan is unbelievable. It's, it's just crazy. Even, you know, RRM is looking red, which is mind blowing to me. It's not something we usually deal with up there. Um, oh, by Spiritwood. So you're right. And, you know, another thing, obviously is probably not going to be feasible this year is, is tillage. I mean, that's kind of a, a last case scenario, last case resort, if there's absolutely no product or, or nothing else you can do. But like you said, moisture, I think is going to be our, another limiting factor to us uh, this coming season. Yeah. So I, you know, I think in, there are still some areas in, in the Canadian prairies that, you know, where tillage would be viable if you, if you can't um, get uh uh, the product that you require, um, you know, and, and on a, a few fields. Uh, but you're right. I think for the most of the province, uh, I, I, on Twitter, I noticed growers even uh, saying they saw differences where they heavy harrowed their fields last year uh, compared to where they just uh, left them undisturbed in terms of crop growth. So uh, I think growers are going to be very cognizant of, of conserving as much moisture as they can. Definitely. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, we don't have to be too concerned. Hopefully we actually get some spring rains this year. That would be, that would be great, a great problem to have. But so I think we've covered quite a bit. Is there anything that either of you can think of that you want to touch on maybe that we missed or? The one thing that I would maybe add is, is that there are, you know, it may, it may be that every drop counts this year in terms of herbicides and making really the, uh, the most of what we have and, and wasting as little as possible. We did a little study where we looked at the sources of waste on during a sprayer operation. And we discovered that on average, we, we identified 10% of the product that we bought actually went on the ground. And uh, that uh, is uh, much higher than we thought. We numbers were as high as twenty percent, uh, but we were able to reduce them to about three three percent with use of technology such as recirculating booms that allow you to prime the sprayer boom without putting any product on the ground. Uh, 
we might we might put 30 40 gallons that's uh, three to four acres worth of product on the ground if it's a five gallon per acre application it's actually twice that so it's a very significant monetary loss but it's a, it's a waste of product we talked about uh, accurate metering of the tank and making sure that you don't overfill the last load of that of, of the of that field so you don't have leftovers that you can't you know you can't utilize in any other way and ultimately that gets unfortunately dumped on the ground as well so even just investing in an accurate metering device such as the AccuVolume, which we like it's a product that is made in in ontario and it, it weighs the tank contents and gives you the nearest gallon result at any any slope position allows you to fill the tank better and also allows you to monitor the, the the content of the tank down to the last gallon right until the last pass. And so if you do have a little more left over, a little bit less than you wanted, you can make a slight rate adjustment at that moment and, and prevent running out or having to put it on the ground. Uh, you know, simple things like that, I think, are incredibly valuable. Sectional control improvements. So most people with, with pulse width modulation have nozzle by nozzle sectional control now. But even those who don't have PWM can get it for a reasonable cost. So those all add up, and uh, and I think that's that's going to make a difference to some. Definitely, like like the efficiency, like we we're talking about. You know, it's kind of the common theme here too. Is just it's the little things you don't even think about, right? Like checking your nozzles and, and stuff like that, and and your overlap too. That can be huge. So, like you said, those are all crucial things. And the other thing, I guess, that I just thought about bringing up too is just making sure being in good communication with your retail and you know the better idea they have of what products the producers or we need um the better chance of them getting it right and booking early so those are another that's another really important factor i guess would be just communication with retail too hoping hoping to get what you can and and hopefully our you know the supply chain issues don't get too much worse so yeah and Preparation for this, you know, Eric and I spoke to some people in the industry that deal with the, the supply chain and they talked about what they need to know, you know, like, for example, there are some people that are maybe shopping around and they're putting in orders in different places and they may cancel those orders at the very last minute. So, you know, those kinds of uncertainties exist in the system. And I would just encourage people to be honest and 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 not selfish with regards to how many irons you have in the fire for the same acre. Um, that's one aspect. The other one really is that, um, you know, the um, a lot of the supply issues are really out of the hands of the manufacturers. You know, they are producing what they can. And we're fortunate when we have domestic productions, for example, Gowan produces their soil applied products uh, locally in Alberta and in Manitoba and is, is, a, is in a better shape than to, to respond to situations, certainly a lot better condition than if you had a, your product in a sea can buried under a bunch of other sea cans in some port uh, in Los Angeles, you know? Um, so I think we have an advantage there. Yeah, so just to follow up, uh, I, I mean, I think that would be just one final point I would make. Uh, it doesn't uh, pertain to weed as much as it does to canola, but, you know, there is potential to be using uh, soil applied herbicides in uh, in your oil seeds and, and pulses this year. Um, you know, uh, they can be applied in the spring. Um, they just require incorporation with, uh, you know, a heavy harrow. Um, and they can provide some initial uh, grass and broadleaf weed control in, in your canola. Uh, they're not perfect, but they will reduce the densities and perhaps uh, allow the grower to make a single application of glyphosate or glufosinate 
Uh, we've talked mainly about glyphosate, but glufosinate could also be in short supply because of the demand of the new enlist soybeans in the United States. Uh, so instead of uh, you know, a double application in crop, a grower might be able to get away with the pre-seed application plus a single application in crop. Yeah, that's a really great point. And we hadn't brought up glufosinate. So thank you for bringing that up. I think we've kind of covered all we had set out to cover. Um, thank you guys for taking the time again to be here today. That was, that was great. We've got a really great resource here in this podcast. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Wheat Profit brought to you by the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission. For more information on wheat agronomy, marketing, advocacy, and research, please go to saskwheat.ca or follow us on Twitter where we are at saskwheat.